Hi, I'm Betsy Phillips. Welcome to Ladyland. Think about your closest friend. Maybe you know where she works, but do you know what she does all day? Do you know her job title? Do you know what she studied in school? Turns out, I didn't. So, I made a podcast to find out. Welcome to Ladyland. I'm your host, Kim Baldwin. This is a conversation with women from all walks of life and different backgrounds. It's funny at times, serious at times, but always honest. This is Ladyland. Um, hi, Betsy. Welcome to Ladyland. Hello, Kim. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. You are a prized guest. <laughs> you are. I mean, that's deeply flattering, but like from my own perspective, I'm so boring. I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> Man, you think that you are boring. I'm real worried. <laughs> you are the most interesting person Period, but for sure in Nashville, and you are beloved. People come up to me to tell me they like listen to the podcast or whatever, and they every single person says, "Will you please get Betsy?" <laughs> Everyone does. Oh man, Nashville, I love you too. <laughs> so, for anyone who doesn't know, if you don't mind, just um, you're Betsy fucking Phillips. What do you do? <laughs> who are you? Right. So, um, I'm Betsy Phillips. If you know me, you probably know me from the Nashville scene where I have been writing on and off for approximately 10,000 years. I also write some fiction, although it's been a while since I've done that, and um, a short story that I wrote called Frank, which is kind of a zombie story, was just made into a short film by Starina Johnson and is now playing at film festivals, which is Amazing and so weird and lovely. And um, for the last four or five years, I've been researching the integration era bombings here in Nashville and trying to solve them, which is <laughs> maybe biting off a little more than I could chew. I'm also, my day job is I'm the marketing manager at Vanderbilt University Press. And I like to crochet and spin yarn and dye yarn that's like my favorite hobby and I don't know I think that that's about it like basically just things you can do if you're a homebody are the things I do (laughs) yeah it's a real normal combination of things I think um (laughs) yeah dye yarn crochet afghans web sleuth um (laughs) local I mean I Someone's got to go interview the terrorist, right? (laughs) Someone has to. How do you become a historian? When did this start for you? Were you just curious and you're like, you know what? I can act. There's a place I can go to get answers. I'm going to start getting answers. Well, so um, I'm not a native Nashvillian. And I I think we all know that because native Nashvillians are like as rare as hen's teeth. (laughs) Um, but so I grew up in the Midwest where there is like no history. It is just literally as if your grandparents came out of the cornfield, you're assigned an ethnicity. So you know what holiday to get drunk on, but like, 
<laughs> there's no, you know, there isn't any kind of sense of like the long term of stuff. And so when I first moved here, you know, I was like, well, I'll do my, you know, I'll read up on this place that I'm moving to and everything. And then I realized like, oh my gosh, you can just still go see this shit. You know, like if you read about the battle of Nashville and they're like, general so-and-so used this house for his, you know, headquarters or whatever, you can drive over, you can see it. You can go to Fort Negley and stand up top and view out over the city and see where the other forts were and get a sense for like how Nathan Bedford Forrest was trying to come into town. And, you know, I just was so blown away. So then like having that sense and then realizing like, oh my gosh, the folks at the State Library and the State Museum both have just been like my drug dealers for curiosity. (laughs) Um, I mean, I've been very fortunate, like when I've had questions about old Nashville, I'll just drop Jeff Sellers at the State Museum and email and be like, hey, I'm trying to figure out, you know, where thus and such might have been. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's over here. Or you should contact so-and-so at the state archaeologist or whatever. Like, so I feel so fortunate you know, because it is a matter of my own curiosity, but it is also that there's just this network of incredible people who want to feed that curiosity. And like, that's one thing that I hope when I write about history that comes across to people is like, I'm not some like magician who's like able to do this thing that nobody else can do. Everybody could do this. Like if there is something that gets its hooks in you There are all these resources, all these great people who want to help you, like, satisfy your curiosity, who probably also have already been curious about this. There's just so much knowledge out there. And I I feel really fortunate, but I really do hope that people get, like, this is for you, too. Like, I'm just a normal, maybe not normal, but, like, I'm just an ordinary person. (laughs) So if I can do this, you can, too. I would love it if they want to crown me queen of the State Library and Archives. I will wear the crown. But, you know, like, when I go in there, like, it's not like somebody's like, oh, it's Betsy. Hurry up, everybody, and, like, be available. Like, no, that's just how they are for everybody. So I think we're so super lucky. This is, like, really, I mean, I know even myself, when I write at Pith, like, I tend to be down on our state government. But we are so fortunate about like the people that we have in place at the state library and archives at the state museum the um state archaeology department is like super helpful super i mean you know and you'd think like that those would just be people who are like i'm sorry i'm too busy debating this thing that happened 13,000 years ago i don't have time for you asking me this question that you know you could have looked up on google or something you know But there's really like a kind of huge generosity that I have found that I just, I do know, I know we're so lucky and it it makes me so happy. Like, it's just really, you know, it's affirming to be like, hey, I want to know about this thing now. And for people to be like, hell yes, let's go find out about it. (laughs) It's just really nice. It's really nice to hear. I'm not surprised, but it's always nice to hear like there are people in place who enjoy their job and are good at their job and that interact with the people that need them in a really positive way. That's, I really like to hear that. I think a lot of people may follow you on Twitter and have 
been with you this year on your cemetery journey. <laughs> is the cemetery journey newish? Like, I feel like I've just noticed you in the last year really hitting the cemeteries hard. And I'm curious, what sparked your curiosity about the cemeteries? Uh, well, if I had known that goth was a thing when I was in high school, I I would have, you know, like, I'm sure like everybody our age, when I saw Beetlejuice, I was like, Lydia Dietz is my, that's my soul on screen right there. <laughs> so I've always been very interested in cemeteries. And like for a long time, I was really fascinated by Timothy de Munbrian and his family. So I spent a lot of time in a lot of rural cemeteries trying to track down various de Munbrians. But what's happened lately, I think really is in part because of COVID. Like, what can I do that's like not going to put myself and other people in danger? And it turns out like going to cemeteries and poking around is a really safe thing to do, even with others, because it can be six feet apart and people that you're looking for are all six feet under. So it's all, you know, like everybody is safe and socially distanced. And I've also, I've been, um, I'm on the board. Oh, I guess I should have said that. I'm on the board of Historic Nashville. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, it's also like if you are a history buff, they're great. Like I'm having the best time. I mean, it's, it's also really depressing because, you know, Nashville is like, oh, here's this valuable thing we tore down in the middle of the night while you weren't looking, which is, you know, so that's really depressing, but it's also really gratifying and super interesting. So this year's Nashville 9 included like two things I'm really psyched about, which is like the Luby House and then the William Edmondson Headstones. And so I have been on this like mission to try to locate all of the Edmondson headstones that might still exist. And God bless, again, like it turns out people at the state had a secret list that they shared with nobody that's like photos of all of the Edmondson headstones, like GPS coordinates, like all this information. But I had to get like way deep into my own research before anybody was like, you know, I don't know, like Watergate or me, we didn't, we just, you know, like actually we met in a parking lot, but it was in a cemetery. It wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't that secret, but you know, it was like, you can look at this paper copy of our secret list, but you can't have it for yourself. Um, but then I was really proud because I had a couple that were, that they didn't have. So I was like, ha, ha, ha. Um, <laughs> But then I had this idea that, like, there are predictable places that Edmondson's headstones are. So why don't we go look at other cemeteries that have those same characteristics? So that's what I've been doing is, like, just trying to, like, sweep up and check out every Black cemetery in Davidson County, basically, just to try to make sure that there aren't any other Edmondson's in there that people don't know about. So that when we're preserving them, we have a full list of what needs to be preserved. God. What do cemeteries teach you like about Nashville's past in terms of racism? Like you had some great tweet. I think it was the very end of a thread, but you said who puts up the fences matters. And I thought that was so great. And I would love to hear you just talk about that a little bit more. 
Sure. Um, well, so I think that I came to that conclusion, oh, gosh, like probably the weekend I went out and saw the Bryant Town Cemetery. So the Bryant, Bryant Town is super fascinating because Bryant, whose first name is, of course, like fled my head the moment that I need it. But he was a black guy who owned slaves. So whenever white people want to have some kind of discussion about slavery where they let themselves off the hook, we let ourselves off the hook, they bring Sherrod Bryan up, he owned slaves. But after slavery, everybody stayed pretty put. Like they didn't flee to Nashville as so many enslaved people had. And if you look at Sherrod Bryant's slave catalog in the censuses, he has a lot of very young and female slaves, like so moms and children. And African-Americans owning slaves, especially in Middle Tennessee, was not that uncommon because if an enslaved person was free, they had to leave the state. And especially because of how things were here on the ground in Nashville, there were a lot of enslaved people whose owners lived out in the countryside and they sent them to Nashville to work. And so as long as they sent money back to the farm, there were no white supervisors of them in town. So it's very, very easy for an enslaved person and a free person of color to end up married. So you can imagine if you are the free person of color and you want to keep your family together, the two options you have are to go to Cincinnati, which a ton of people did, or to buy your spouse or your children or your in-laws or whatever. And then you become their owner and you all stay together in your community where all your family and friends are. And I like, I don't know a whole lot about Sherrod Bryant, but I'm not passing any judgment on him until, like, there's more research done. Because it just, it when I look at the ages of those people, it just very much looks like somebody who might have been like, yeah, I need this whole family. All the kids, all the cousins, aunts, you got a grandma in there, fine, I'm, I'm taking them all. And then, like, the cemetery where he is buried is also full of enslaved people and then people who were parts of the families that were enslaved on his land afterwards. But like realizing that that cemetery is, I mean, it's not in great shape. Like it definitely could use some work, but it's right there on Elm Hill Pike. It's visible from the road. It is easily opened and shut and like people can drive by and keep an eye on it. Whereas the Briarville Cemetery, not the Benevolent Cemetery, which is like kind of right on Ellington Parkway, but the other one is like tucked back behind in this woods. And it's like anybody could knock anything over or steal anything or and like there is this terrible, terrible habit that developers, I'm sure it's not just in Davidson County, but I know Davidson County best where they will put a fence around a black cemetery with no gate and then refuse to let the family into the cemetery, even if the land says, you know, the deed says that they're supposed to always have access. 
And then as the cemetery becomes neglected, they're able to then go to zoning or whoever and say, well, you know, I have this abandoned cemetery on my property. Can I just move everybody and put up my high rise? But the only reason that it's abandoned is because they wouldn't let the family in there to take care of it. And that is just an incredibly common, or like I know of a case over here by me, there is a cemetery at the corner of Ewing and Green. And the owners of the land have twice removed the historical marker that points out the cemetery. They've taken down all of the fencing from the cemetery. And there's nothing, like if you don't know that that's a cemetery, there's nothing, like there's no headstones or anything left. But a lot of times in a cemetery that age, black and white people were buried together. And the black graves were marked, you know, with plants or with wooden markers or with things that wouldn't have survived this long. And that lot's for sale. And I looked up, you know, to see like if there's any indication on the that, that the cemetery is there and there is not, there's no indication. So whoever, you know, somebody could buy that land in good faith, even go see it and be like, well, yeah, I mean, it's got some stuff in the middle that needs to be cleared out. And it is weird that there are like these little dips, but if you're not thinking like, oh my gosh, that means a cemetery, you're just thinking like, well, we're going to have to bring in some fill or something, you know, like that won't be the fault of the buyer. That's a deliberate choice that ownership has made, probably not even this current owner alone, but like just a decision to slowly erase this cemetery. And, you know, the Ewing family, hugely prominent. And there are just a ton of questions that could be answered from the cemetery. It's like, we don't know what, the future is going to need from the past, which I think is like the reason to preserve it is because for a lot of Black Nashvillians, their connection to any of their family pre the Civil War is in these buildings. If you want to put your hand where your great, great, great grandmother put her hand, it's in that building or it's in the stone wall that's, you know, along the boundary of the plantation. And, you know, I think a lot of well-meaning white people are like, oh, well, these are just ugly reminders of slavery. It's okay if we take them down or it's okay if we destroy them. But we don't know what the families of the victims of these places are going to need. And like to deny them you know, even if it's this generation doesn't want it, we don't know. The next generation might. I do think white people need to stop having weddings at plantations. That's really gross. <laughs> but I, I just really, really firmly believe that those places need to be preserved. And those cemeteries, like, again, we can't, we should not be destroying cemeteries that folks don't yet know they need. A long time ago, not a, I guess a long time ago, I wrote a piece for the scene about the um, slaves that the city of Nashville had owned. And 
I just was really struck by this one kid, Alan, who was 14 when the city bought him. And they, you know, took him from Virginia, from his family, and they brought him here. And he was already, his back was already covered in scars. So clearly he had been sold because he was not like, (laughs) he wasn't just acquiescing to being enslaved. So we put him to this terrible, brutal work. And then he died and he's buried in the city cemetery. And there was a moment in the writing of that story where I, like, I really felt like he was around and curious. And, and I, I mean, I do, I think part of that is just that there is power in remembering and telling people stories. Part of it may be, you know, that I'm crazy or whatever. But I also know that like the minute that I started to feel like, oh, Alan is curious about this is like kind of when the story really started to come together and felt like, oh, okay, now I know, I know how to organize it. I know how to tell this. And I, I said at the end of that piece that we took everything from Alan. Like we took his mom, we took his home, we took his people. If he still has relatives, which he probably does, they will never be able to find him. Like it would take just such a a massive amount of luck for them to piece together that he was sold from Virginia to here. So I do think that when we talk about like, well, slavery was so long ago, what are we supposed to do about it? It's like, well, part of what we're supposed to do about it is be the people for the people who we stole. We have to remember them. We have to honor them. And we have to like tell their stories because we stole from them the ability for their family to do that. And, you know, it's not perfect. Like it it is, there's a, a kind of grossness about it to be like, hey, we exploited you your whole life. And now that you're dead, we're gonna like tell your story. But on the other hand, like there is no other option because of misdeeds by white people. So, you know, like I do think bringing all of Nashville into community is incredibly important. And that means that recognizing that all of Nashville's dead are our dead and that they all deserve to be honored as if the ways we would honor our own family is is just really, that is really important to me. It's interesting, earlier when you were talking about the people that work like in the archives in the state library, uh, how generous they are with you and how generous they are with their knowledge. And because I can, we're on Zoom and I can see your face, like I could tell how much what they do means to you and you are doing that now. And so I wonder, it's just interesting to note like the, the compassion on both sides, like you feel compassion from these librarians and archivists but like you are also giving that compassion out and it's just neat to see in real time, like this compassion pipeline. Right. Like right. It's, it's, I didn't expect that when I was going to talk to you, I just, I was like, I'm going to learn stuff. It's going to be super weird. I'm going to ask her about ghosts. Oh, good. <laughs> and now I like have chills and tears in my eyes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah, the compassion really comes through. Well, I'm nice. I'm honored that you recognize that. That's nice. Thank you. Yes. 
I want to ask you about Dynamite Nashville. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know answers. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is a silk you're writing that comes out soon, right? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I'm being this out. I'm being held hot, not held hostage. I feel like I'm being held hostage by the National Archives. I'm not actually being held hostage by the National Archives. So I was very lucky very early on when I started doing this research, Rachel Martin, I don't know if you know her, she would be an interesting person for you to talk to. No, I'm drawing a blank. We just published, or no, it comes out next month. Vanderbilt University Press has just is publishing her book on hot chicken. Oh, yeah. Yeah, duh. Yeah. Okay. But she has been doing research on Clinton, Tennessee for a long time. And I think she's got like an actual trade house that's going to publish that book. But I talked to her when I was very early on in my research, and she gave me this very wise advice, which is do your FOIA requests right now. That's Freedom of Information? Yes, Freedom of Information Act requests. And she's like, send them to everybody, send them to the FBI, send them to the National Archives, be prepared to be jerked around, give yourself plenty of time to be jerked around. So in that pile of Freedom of Information Act requests that I sent to the FBI, I asked for anything that they had on the Luby bombing. So just briefly, if people don't know this, Z. Alexander Luby was a civil rights attorney in Nashville. He was probably like the most important civil rights attorney in Tennessee. Like anything that Black people were able to legally accomplish in the 20th century, he is somehow involved. Just hands down super important. He was also a city councilman at the time that his house was blown up, which was April of 1960. And he had been involved with desegregating Nashville schools. So I sent this Freedom of Information Act request and the FBI got back to me and was like, we've destroyed the relevant files. And I was like, somebody tried to assassinate a sitting U.S. politician and you destroyed those files. It it didn't make any sense to me, but there's a lot of weird, like I ran into a lot of stuff that the FBI destroyed that I was like, I do not understand why this file would have ever been destroyed but those were kind of lower level people. This was a really high profile person for us, for them to say that they had destroyed the files. But I believed them because like I said, I knew that they had done it in other cases. It just nagged at me like, why would you destroy the files of an assassination attempt? And then long story short, I ended up talking to Keel Hunt who led me to some other folks to talk to. And they were all like, no, 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 this would not have happened. And yeah, I was talking to Hal Harden, who is a retired U.S. attorney, and he's like, you need to call John Lewis right now. And I was like, I might need to, but you can't just be calling John Lewis. Like, I'm nobody. (laughs) But I did reach out to John Lewis's office, and they sent me to their person in charge of civil rights. And she was like, sorry, we can't help you open an inquiry into the FBI's behavior because you're not our constituent. And I was like, Oh no, I don't I don't need an inquiry. I'm just trying to like understand 
why this happened. I'm just looking for like Congressman Lewis's insight. And she's like, yes, I am so sorry to tell you that we cannot open an inquiry for you because you are not our constituent. And I was like, oh, okay. It took me, took me a second. So I got a hold of Lisa Quigley in Jim Cooper's office. And I was like, is this something that Congressman Cooper would help me with? And like 10 minutes later, she was like, Jim's in, send us everything, all your correspondence with the FBI. So they did all whatever like magical stuff that they were doing for a few months. And then Congressman Cooper sent this letter to Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, that was like so nerdy and so badass that I was like, just reading this letter makes me want to crawl under my desk. Like, I can't, if I were Christopher Ray, I'd just be like, sorry, I have to go home for the rest of the day. Um, and it ended with this, like, if, if this needs to be a confidential briefing, consider this, my request for a confidential briefing, you have 30 days to get back to me. It was, it was I mean, I'm like, I, remind me to never cross Congressman Cooper ever, especially not about nerdy things, because that dude is, he is ready to go. So on like day 32, I get an email from the FBI, which I'm like, oh, dudes, you're playing this wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I get an email from the FBI and they're like, oops, files that may be appropriate for to your, you know, they're over at the National Archives. So they hadn't destroyed the bombing files. So I then like re-put in my Freedom of Information Act request at the National Archives. And two really interesting things happened. One is like where I am sad now, where they're like, yes, we have the bombing file. It's like 180 pages. We have to do this review. It's going to take like two years. I was like, well, please, you know, do it. Well, my two years ended last year and I still haven't gotten it. But it's been covid and since they're FBI files, they're not files that the National Archive people can take home to work on, you know, <laughs> like, so I get why we're stuck, but I'm also like, this is like it. Like, I know what the FBI thought happened with Hattie Cotton. I know what they thought happened with the Jewish Community Center. Like, I need to know what they thought happened here. But then the National Archive person was like, and here's Luby's FBI file which I was like, oh, okay. And I'm flipping through it and it is basically like, and again, I cannot emphasize for your listeners how much stuff Luby was involved in. I mean, Luby sat on a stage with Martin Luther King after his house was bombed. You know that J. Edgar Hoover probably had a 13 page rant just on him taking support from King. None of that is in the file. The file is just about how Luby was having a fight with somebody else in the NAACP. And I was like, there's no way. Like this file was, I mean, they sent me 20 pages and I'm like, this file was 20 pages the day it was opened. But then I realized just based on like, based on the, timing of this fight, which was like 55-56. So they had had a file on Luby since before the bombing. So even if 
they destroyed a bunch of stuff that was in that file. What the fact that the file existed told me was that they were keeping an eye on him. So either they knew that someone was plotting against him and they didn't do anything to stop it, or they fucked up because they didn't know. You know, like if you have somebody under that kind of surveillance and you miss out on the assassination attempt against them. So, yeah. So that's then just also then made me more eager to see the file on the bombing because I'm, I'm really curious, like, which way that went. Like, if they knew and just kind of didn't do anything or if they truly didn't know, which I did. But I, I have a really hard time believing that it's the second. Ladyland listeners, have I got a deal for you. LOL. But seriously, I have a deal for you. Libro.fm is the first and only company that lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your local independent bookstore. And guess what? We have two of those here in Nashville. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your completely unstructured life. Listen during your commute to your living room while doing chores, walking the dog, petting the cat, or relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. Ladyland special offer. Get two audiobooks for the price of one. That's $14.99 with your first month of membership using the code Ladyland at checkout. It's really easy. Have you ever seen a ghost? (laughs) Um, Not that I know of. But I have had weird experiences where I'm just like, something something is going on here. You know, I long to have the experience where it's like, I look down the aisle at the Tennessee State Library and Archives and there is Andrew Jackson. Like I hear archivists tell stories like that. I, I talked to a person who shall remain nameless who saw Andrew Jackson rifling through a box where his old legal paperwork was and who, you know, like looked down and saw this person rifling through the box and was like, excuse me, sir, can I help you? And he looked up and then faded away. And then she was like, Oh, wait, wait, I, I recognize who that person was. <laughs> and you know, like I've never had anything like that where I was like, Oh, 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 wow. Um, but I have had, like, I think, like, for me, the one that sticks in my mind the most is um, I have a friend who, at the time, was a, like, historical interpreter up in Newport, Rhode Island. And we went to stay with her in the mansion where she was a historical interpreter. And I was sleeping on a couch in the hallway the first night, and I woke up because someone was saying my name, like Betsy, Betsy. And I was so embarrassed because I was like, oh my God, I must have been snoring so loud for somebody to like need to come out in this hallway and like try to wake me up. So I was like, oh God, I'm sorry. You know, I I, like roll over and I'm like laying there and I'm like, can hear the person breathing in the room that's like behind where the couch is. And then eventually like I hear them kind of like breathe like they've fallen asleep. And then I hear the grandfather clock ring. And so I'm like, okay, it's two in the morning. The person's fallen back to sleep. Now it is safe for me to go to sleep. 
So I go to sleep. There's nothing weird about this. Like this whole time, everything I'm telling you, it's just like this. I got no heebie-jeebies, no nothing. It just was a very, like, if you are a snorer, you know the embarrassment of like when someone is sleeping with you and they're like, God, you got to roll over. So I get up in the morning and we're all at breakfast and I'm like, you guys, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. Whoever has that room, you know, up off the hallway, I'm because I was so embarrassed because I was like, I don't know any of these people except Becca. And like now they're just like, oh, here's this like hippopotamus snoring in the hallway or whatever. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, you know, the person in the room behind me woke me up and they're like, you got to come see this. And they open the room and it's like where the heating system is. Like there's not even a floor. There's not a place just literally like, how they ran the HVAC through this ancient house. There must've been a room there at some point cause there's a door, but now it is just a way to get into those pipes. And I'm like, you know, a little freaked out, but then they're like, well, what time was this? Maybe, you know, somebody was like up going to the bathroom and I was like, well, I heard the grandfather clock ring too. And then they're like, oh shit. <laughs> so we go down to the grandfather clock, which has no innards. It's just the case and the face. It doesn't even have like little hands. The hands, all the equipment that moves and makes noises is all gone. And I mean, to this day, I I have no explanation for it. But I also think that that's probably like if supernatural stuff is real, I do think for the most part, you probably do not recognize it when it's happening. 100%. That's what I believe. You know, that it's just like weird, unexplainable stuff. Right, right. And that's and, a good story. Right. It may not even seem weird at the time. Like, because certainly, like, if I had known there was no grandfather clock with like, it works, when I heard it, I would have been freaked the fuck out. <laughs> like, that you know, like, but I was just like, oh, you know, embarrassing me for me. But now I'm back to bed. So, yeah. Ooh, okay. Well, glad I asked you that. <laughs> what? So many people move to Nashville all of the time. I wonder, I had this ridiculous thought the other day when I was thinking about what I was going to talk to you about, is um, how much I wish that to move here, you had to take a class with Betsy Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. You had to pass. <laughs> Our neighborhoods would be so much better. If everyone who wanted to live here and build a house in our neighborhoods had to take a class with you. The first, there are many, 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 many changes I would make. The first change, the thing that makes me like, I know this is going to seem stupid, but it makes me so irate, like literally to where I would like, someone should just burn this house down is like the tall and skinnies where the roof comes to like a concave point it rains here we get snow here why would you make a giant gutter in the middle of your house for water to collect and then you're going to charge six hundred thousand dollars for something like i i don't even have to tour the house and i can tell you that that roof's gonna leak it's probably leaking right now like who is making these things we have to put up with the fact that they're ugly we have to put up with the fact that there's like four on a lot that used to have one little house on it. And now we have to put up with the fact that 
Because, like, it's aesthetically and just, like, it's ridiculous all around. I, I honestly feel like for most of Nashville's history, it's just been, like, let rich people do what they want. And if it ends up being a disaster, we'll just tear it down and put up something new in its place. But we will never learn any lessons from it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's too long to be our official slogan. But <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, we got the weird skull with the Indian dude. Maybe just draw like a little cartoon bubble. <laughs> yes. What, what, are, what piece of natural history are you surprised more people don't know? Ooh. Well, I'm not surprised because I feel like we kind of do a bad job of teaching our history. But a thing that I think a lot about is especially in Nashville's early history. So like if you imagine, let's go way back. <laughs> Nashville really was like the frontier of what would become America, the United States. You know, like we were across the mountains and it wasn't easy to get back to Philadelphia. It certainly wasn't easy even to get back to North Carolina. You know, like if you failed out here, you you failed. But a thing that kind of constantly surprises me is in those early stages, you see Nashville floundering around in such interesting ways. You know, it's like they realize, I mean, they were obviously having like constant problems with the locals. <laughs> As you can imagine, a lot of folks were like, wait, what, who are these people and why are they on our hunting grounds? But I think it's important for people to realize too that like the Native Americans who were in what is now Tennessee at the time that Nashville was founded were a super knowledgeable part of a worldwide fur trading business. If you were to look at the people who are, were in what is now Tennessee and you were like, okay, where, where would we find the people who've been to Philadelphia, which was the capital at the time? Most of the people from what is now Tennessee who had been to Philadelphia were Cherokee people who lived down where Chattanooga is now. If you were like, how many people in Tennessee have been to Europe? That was going to be mostly Cherokee and Creek people because they went where their business was. So I think like we white people have this view of that part of history as like civilization comes in and ruins things for these, you know, primitive natives when it's like, no, this, these were like astute business people who had already been under a ton of like pressures from these interactions with the wider world and stuff. But Nashville kept like, they had all these moments when like you see the possibility for things to go another way. So like very early on in Nashville's history, the Methodists called a meeting, like a town meeting, and were like, basically like, hey, we all know slavery's wrong. So what if we just outlaw slavery and we'll send our slaves west? And if they make it through Chickasaw Territory to Spain, because remember, Spain is on the other side of the Mississippi at that time, they're like, fine. And if they don't, not our problem. But, you know, and then when people show up here and are like, where are all your slaves? We'll just be like, oh, they died you know, or they couldn't, whatever. But like, 
And then the town had this serious discussion. And again, right, like clearly not not racist. Like it's not unracist to be like, oh, send them out into the wilderness to die. But it was a moment when the city was like, well, clearly slavery is wrong, right? And the whole city was like, well, yeah, obviously this is wrong. But then they were like, but how are we going to do it if we don't have slaves? And so they decided, you know, like we're going to keep slaves. But there's this possibility. There was this moment when so early on when they were like, we all know this is wrong. That's really the thing is like, I feel like Nashville has always had a kind of like, we've always kind of had the ability to see what the right thing to do is. And we have always been timid about doing it. And I feel like that continues even down to the present day. And I guess that's the thing. If there was one thing that I would want Nashville to know about its own history is like, this is a deeply entrenched and really bad habit that we have that we should break. I know people talk about like slavery and Indian removal as like the nation's original sins. For me, Nashville's original sin is knowing the right thing and not doing it because it's too hard. And, you know, like there's been a lot of suffering in this city because of that. Betsy Phillips. <laughs> no, come on. You got to tell people that I'm just sitting here in my pajamas. And like... Wearing an Afghan, it looks like. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. I want to ask you a very serious question. Okay. Uh, what would your professional wrestling name be? Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, this is a hard question. Because, like, I feel like I would want my wrestling persona to be, like, the unsinkable Molly Brown. Where it's like, no matter what you do, I will thrive anyway. And, like, I would hope that would also then involve, like some kind of corset that just made me look like a battleship, you know, where it's like, okay, so I am a lumpy, fat, middle-aged woman. Let's just like lean into it, push everything up, push everything back, like just make me my own metal cage. But I don't know that the unsinkable Betsy Phillips has quite the same ring to it. But that would definitely be, like, my aesthetic is, like, maybe outlaw Molly Brown or something. I'm thinking Battleship Betsy. Oh, see? You're good at this. You've got to be my manager. That's that's what it is. <laughs> Listen, when this pandemic is over, we will we'll take this on the road. This was such a joy. I'm so glad you did this. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm Kim Baldwin, and that's our show. Thanks so much for joining us. To find full show notes, head over to ladyland.show. And if you know a lady that I need to meet, slip into my DMs. You can find me at ladyland underscore podcast on Instagram. This podcast is produced by Mary Catherine Rooker and brought to you by We Own This Town. Logo by Elizabeth Williams. Music by U-Drive. Download anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a minute, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review Ladyland. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.